Welcome to BDO Canada's cross-border podcast series. In this 10th episode of the series, we're discussing finance operations for companies entering the Canadian marketplace. My name is Angeline Chandra, and I lead BDO Canada's transfer pricing practice. As countries try to rebuild their economies in a post-COVID world, many corporations are looking to invest in other jurisdictions. Our podcast will focus on issues multinationals should consider when financing business operations in Canada. Joining me today is Dr. Jamel Hajazi, Chief Economist for BDO Canada. Jamel is a member of the transfer pricing practice and provides economic consulting services to many industries and special interest groups across Canada. Also joining us is Hedel Kotecha, who is a partner in our international tax practice and leader of the Toronto M&A tax practice. Hedl, let's kick things off with your thoughts for companies looking to expand into Canada. What are some considerations for those companies looking to finance their operations here? Thank you, Angeline. As many of you may be aware, M&A activity was at incredibly high levels in fiscal 2021. For example, Canadian deal activity increased by 117% compared to 2020 and deal volume increased by 24% over the same time period. While M&A activity levels in fiscal 22 may not surpass 2021 levels, we expect M&A activity to be robust in 2022. We've also observed with the strong liquidity in capital markets and access to funding, there is fierce competition in the marketplace for quality targets. We've regularly seen multiple bidders with elevated premiums being paid for target companies. It remains to be seen if there will be some downward pressure on the purchase price being premiums being paid for target companies in fiscal 2022. This is particularly a case for companies operating in the technology sector where such companies do not have strong balance sheets or good cash flow. We've also observed a number of Canadian companies looking to go public has softened in 2022 for various business and commercial and geopolitical reasons. Finally, we've observed increasing importance on environmental, social, and government initiatives, and we expect this to become a critical deal point as we go forward. Finally, uh, many purchasers want key management and owners to continue with the business for a period of time after closing. Accordingly, having continuity of management and key resources is a key deal consideration uh, given the current labor shortages. An important variable in any M&A deal is how the transaction will be financed. Jamel, what are some of your observations on this? Thank you, Angeline. As the world economy becomes more globalized, the need for M&A activity will increase. M&A activity will rely on the ability to secure finance for, for new operations. The question often becomes, do we finance internally or externally? Most companies have non-investment grade credit quality standing. Securing debt in this space is difficult as the non-investment grade space in Canada is small in comparison to other markets such as the U.S. If debt is secured intercompany, any such internal debt will need to meet the standards under transfer pricing rules found under Section 247 of the Income Tax Act. Now, lots of trends are occurring in this space. Many companies are starting to turn to internal debt financing. Debt financing from third parties, such as banks or investment banks, is not easy to obtain in non-investment degrade space. It is often expensive and is associated with a lot of conditions attached to such loans. Securing third-party debt reduces transfer pricing audit risks as these debts are between unrelated parties where rates and terms are deemed arm's length. 
often the simplest way to secure financing is if internal capital exists where the parent or the sister company has access to capital it can loan to entities in Canada, for instance. Given the related party nature of such transactions and the incentive to tax plan, the government to require such intercompany debt to be structured such that it meets the arm's length standard. This often requires some compliance costs, but may be one of the best ways of securing debt. Heddle, over to you. Thanks, Jamal. While Jamal does raise some interesting observations, uh, many purchasers of Canadian businesses are private equity funds together with some strategic buyers. Typically, the buyers have strong balance sheets, access to larger, more sophisticated capital pools, and their ability to secure external financing is not constrained. In our experience, a key variable for non-Canadian purchasers is whether they should use external debt, internal leverage, or a combination thereof when purchasing a Canadian target. In addition, if external debt is being utilized, an important consideration is whether the funds should be sourced from Canadian or non-Canadian lenders. This may influence how external financing is sourced and whether the borrowing will be in Canada or outside of Canada. Finally, the cost of funding and the type of security being requested by a lender are important business considerations. Now I'll turn to Angeline to discuss some issues pertaining to debt capacity. You raise a very important point, Heddle. I'd like to add that before companies consider borrowing from related parties, they need to ensure that their financial situation and business operations support their ability to borrow the funds contemplated. The OECD recently introduced new guidance that requires taxpayers to perform a debt capacity analysis. The purpose of this analysis is to prove that a taxpayer's financial and economic status enables them to borrow such a sum of money, as well as pay the stated interest rate. The debt capacity analysis is a requirement to support the arm's length nature of the intercompany transaction, and that's very important to note. Intercompany loans cannot simply result in debt being pushed into Canada. The CRA will ask the question, would arm's length parties be willing to assume such debt at the given interest rate? Heddle, I understand that there have been some recent developments on interest limitation rules in Canada. Can you elaborate? That is correct, Angeline. On February 4th, 2022, the Department of Finance introduced a long-awaited rules relating to excessive interest and financing expense limitation rules, commonly referred to as the Eiffel rules. The introduction of the Eiffel rules will have a significant impact on multinational corporations, investments made by private equity funds and other Canadian public and private enterprises that are using external debt or even related party debt. By way of background, the Eiffel rules implement the recommendations in Action 4 of the OECD's Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project. These rules will apply to taxation years of a taxpayer that begin on or after January 1st, 2023. The Eiffel rules, in short, are complex because they are intended to apply in, in combination with other interest limitation rules in Canada. For example, as the rules are currently drafted, the Canadian thin capitalization rules and transfer pricing rules will take priority in comparison to the Eiffel rules. While it is difficult to cover the entire scope of these rules in this podcast, we observed a number of foreign and Canadian entities take notice of the rules as they evaluate potential acquisition targets. The Eiffel rules are broad in scope and they apply not only to related party debt, but also all third party debt as well. A brief summary of the Eiffel rules is as follows. The Eiffel rules will limit net interest expense to a fixed ratio of taxable income before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization referred to as tax EBITDA. 
the fixed ratio includes two periods, 40% of adjusted tax EBITDA for taxation years beginning on, on or after January 1st, 2023, but before 2024, and 30% for taxation years being on or after January 1st, 2024. The reason there's a 40% rule is to give taxpayers a transitional period as their new rules come into force. In some cases, if certain conditions are met, a group ratio can be applied. The group ratio rules allow a Canadian taxpayer to deduct interest in excess of the fixed ratio of 30% when the taxpayer is able to demonstrate the ratio of consolidated groups net third-party interest expense to its book EBITDA exceeds the fixed ratio. The term interest and financing expense is broadly defined to include more than just traditional interest. For example, it includes capitalized interest as well as interest on financial hedging derivatives and whatnot. In addition, the computation of taxable income under these rules is complex and is subject to various adjustments. For example, Canadian domestic and foreign affiliate dividends are excluded from the application of taxable income. In addition, denied interest expenses essentially subject to a 20-year carry forward limit with some exceptions. Uh, it should be noted the IFO rules impact Canadian corporations, trusts, corporate members of partnerships, as well as Canadian branches of non-resident corporations. However, there is a carve-out for excluded entities. In our view, although there is a carve-out for excluded entities, as a practical matter, many Canadian domestic entities will still be subject to these rules uh, as currently drafted. We have some examples that provide more context to these rules. For example, we have one, one of our clients is developing a renewable project, a solar farm, in Canada. Quite often, these projects are not taxable for several years. However, the projects often incur significant debt at the outset, and they may not generate taxable income for several years. Hence, it's important to model out the cost of financing and the potential tax impact where interest may be restricted for a number of years. It should also be noted that the rules also impact Canadian companies looking to expand outside of Canada. Where Canadian companies borrow funds from external lenders to finance a potential purchase or start new operations, they will need to evaluate the Canadian IFO rules. In addition, uh, U.S. interest limitation rules would also need to be considered. From an M&A perspective, in our view, the introduction of our IFO rules could have a significant impact on how deals are financed and structured. For example, some of the observations we've observed are as follows. Private equity and other investors who are preparing to acquire Canadian target entities need to evaluate the, and model the potential impact of the IFO rules and determine whether the borrowing should occur in Canada or outside of Canada. Since the thin cap rules currently still apply before the new introductory rules, non-residents who are financing their Canadian operations with related party debt will still need to consider the impact of the thin cap rules. It remains to be seen how the new IFO rules will impact inbound capital flows and whether it will reduce the purchase price on deals. Now I will turn over to Jamal for some observations. Thank you, Adol. Intercompany loans must be structured such that it meets the arm's length standard as per Section 247 of the Income Tax Act. Debt capacity studies must be done to ensure the loans contemplated would exist within an arm's length context. Credit quality analysis of related party borrowers must factor in loans envisioned to determine what a reasonable interest rate would be. More debt generally implies higher risks and will result in higher interest rates being charged by related party lenders. How do we determine such an interest rate? A range of interest rates must be determined based on a set of third-party comparables. Adjustment to comparable third-party loans must be made to improve comparability between it and the related party loans. These may include term adjustments, currency adjustments, and credit quality adjustments. 
In sum, we need to ensure the third-party loans are adjusted to take into account the differences between them and the related party loans. Generally speaking, related party borrowers that have a stronger economic outlook should be charged lower rates than those entities that are not as strong. If inbound M&A are financed through third parties, negotiating a rate becomes key. Smaller companies may have a tougher time achieving better interest rates than those of bigger, more credit-worthy borrowers. This is not the only factors that determine if we should, should go internally or not. One thing that we often overlook is bigger macroeconomic issues. In addition to transfer pricing rules, an analysis must be performed to determine if locating in Canada is appropriate from a macroeconomic perspective. Do labor supply, infrastructure, and tax incentives merit a company opening up and bringing inbound investment into Canada? The pandemic has shed light onto the attractiveness of investing in countries like Canada. Before investing in Canada, many questions need to be answered. Are labor input shortages in Canada more pronounced than in other countries? Is the presence of universal health care a factor that makes investing in Canada more attractive than in other locales in terms of cost savings? Is Canada's position as a reliable trading partner being tarnished considering the protests that reduced trade over international borders? These are the types of questions we need to understand to ensure that an investment into Canada is sound from a macroeconomic perspective. Angeline, over to you. Thank you, Jamal and Heddle. If there are a few takeaways from today's conversation, they are, first, for intercompany transactions, they need to meet the arm's length standard and the guidance provided by the OECD related to intercompany debt. This includes the need for a debt capacity study to ensure that the debt assumed and interest rates assigned in the related party context are reasonable based on a set of comparables. Should we decide to assume third-party debt, negotiations become key. However, larger companies with stronger balance sheets are likely to receive better rates than smaller companies. Second, purchasers need to model the impact of the new Eiffel rules and how this will impact the after-tax cost of financing where the interest is restricted. This will need to be considered in connection with other normal interest limitation rules. And finally, in addition to technical aspects, any deal needs to investigate macroeconomic considerations of the host country, supply side issues brought about by the pandemic relative to other countries, issues around cost savings due to universal health care, and socio-political issues that must be considered when determining the merits of an investment from a macroeconomic perspective. In case you missed our last episode, we had a deep dive into the implications of hiring or moving employees for companies coming inbound into Canada. In our next podcast episode, we look at how companies should manage their goods and services when coming into Canada. If you haven't already done so, subscribe and tune into the full Crossborder podcast series. Thanks for listening and take care, everybody.